Holder, uh, the guy we went to unfortunately last week. And to Barbara's mother, Esther Basitza, Moshe, and Malka Friedman. She should be there. That's right, I forgot. That's right. So I wanted to be Makdish this year. You're on. To them. So here we go. So tonight's shir uh, really begins with the ending of the previous chapter. Uh, now, if you'll re- you might recall from the Shurim that there was a constant state of warfare uh, going on between uh, the kings of Israel uh, and the neighbors to the north, the country that, that's called Aram, which today would be uh, I don't know, probably some part of Lebanon, probably more likely part of Syria. So we learned at the end of Perikhof Aleph that there had been three years of peace. Uh, the Gemara understands that there had been three years of peace because Achav uh, had somehow been repentant and HaKadosh Baruch Hu decided to uh, give him uh, an extension, so to speak. So we be- I'll read a couple of the Pesukim at the beginning of the Perik and then we'll stop. What we're going to be reading about is a very strange and uh, very interesting meeting between uh, two very interesting and very different characters. Uh, the protagonist in this parak is Achav Melech Israel, who goes down in Jewish history with a very, um, we say, ambiguous sort of legacy. On the, on the one hand, uh, he's uh, done some very nasty things. On the other hand, uh, if we were looking for uh, somebody to lead the Israeli army nowadays, uh, we would be looking at somebody who's definitely cut out of uh, Achav's cloth. He's a ferocious warrior, and uh, probably, what, if, along with Asa and, and David Amelech, if you could mention them in the same breath, uh, he was a very, very tough guy as the end of the parish bears out. So let's read the first couple of Sukkim together. This is Cherif. We're finishing off Melachim Aleph tonight, Perk Chafet 22. So at the invitation of Achav, King Yehoshaphat goes down. Uh, I couldn't find anybody who said why we have the verb by raid. I imagine it must have something to do with the fact that Shomron is uh, uh, is uh, downhill uh, from Yushalayim. So being a very pragmatic uh, and military ruler, Achav uh, knows where the high ground is. He knows where the strategic military high ground is uh, vis-a-vis these people that he now has a temporary peace with to the north. And he says the high ground, uh, not the moral high ground, but the military high ground, is there for the taking. Let's go get it. So, by, so uh, he then turns to uh, Yehoshaphat, who's his invited guest, and he says to him, And he asks him, how about this? Now, you, those of you who remember a couple weeks past, you know, the Malchei uh, Yisrael and Malchei Yuda were fighting with each other. So he's an ex- offering a treaty, and more than a treaty, he wants an alliance. And he says to Yoshafat, uh, how about joining me in this war? And we have some easy pickings here. Vayomer Yehoshaphat el Melch Yisrael, kamoni chamocha kami chamecha kisusai kisusecha. Basically, mikasa sukasa, 
everything that I'll, I'm willing to bring everything I've got to bear on this war, and let's go do it. So here we have the two great kings, Yoshafat and Ahab, in a military alliance. And then comes the, the clicker. This is really just so fascinating, and uh, we're going to spend a fair amount of time wondering about this tonight in a couple different dimensions. Vayomer Yehoshaphat el-Melech Yisrael. A separate sentence, okay? He's, he's agreed. And then he says to him, Droshna chayom et devar He says, how about asking God what he thinks about our proposed enterprise? Now, uh, there are a, a couple of interesting things uh, to look at on, uh, in terms of this question. The first thing we wonder about is, uh, what is really Yehoshaphat's agenda? Uh, does he really expect Ahab is going to do this? Uh, he's obviously not oblivious to the history of his neighboring uh, fellow king. Uh, so is, is, this, is this like uh, some kind of tempted kiruv or something like that? Um, and then aside from that, you know, so he says to him, Droshna uh, biyad Hashem. So is, is this ever happened before in the history of Tanakh? Does this phrase ring any familiar bells for any people who have been studying Tanakh and have a relationship with this idea of people going out to war and somebody saying, Droshna et Dvar Hashem. How about before David? Before that? I don't think so. So how about the beginning of Sefer Shoftim? So Yeshua's passed away. And what's going on is that uh, the, uh, the Jewish people are there without Yehoshua. They need to conquer the land. And they, they ask the question, you know, Mi'alelanu. Who's going to lead, who's gonna lead uh, the battle uh, to conquer Eretz Yisrael? Now, uh, so uh, I want to read you uh, two commentaries, uh, just very briefly. The Rabag says, Shacharei mot Yehoshua, shalu Israel, Bashem, Rotzel Amar, they asked the Urim Vitumim, okay? The Malbim adds, he says, I didn't know this. This is fascinating. Well, they said all the entire lifetime of span of, of Yoshua, you hear this, Hannah? When Joshua was, was allowed, they didn't have to ask anything. They didn't have to ask anybody. Yoshua was, was Evan Moshe. He knew exactly what to do. And now it's after he's gone uh, that there's a problem. Uh, later evidence of the use of the Urim Vitumim. Upinchas ben Elazar ben Aaron omeid lefana bayamim ahem lemor, haosefod latzeit lamilchama im b'nei b'in yaminachi im echdal. Remember the word echdal. Vayomer Adonai alu ki machar etnenu biyadecha. So here we are in the end of Sefer Shoftim. We just started out at the beginning of Sefer Shoftim. Pinchas ben Elazar is clearly carrying the Urim Vitumim. And what's going on? Hmm? I'll tell you in one one more second. You're right on. You're right with us. So the the question of the day is: We're in the middle of the war, or what's going to be the war of Pilagish Pegiva, where this is a civil war for the Jewish people, and what the the uh, the other Shvatim want to know is they've been completely b'nei binyamin, one shevet, absolutely, you know, took a very surprising advantage in the first battle. Now they want to know, should we try again? And so they're asking the Urim Bitumim. The last time that we hear about this, uh, and we'll get back to this again, listen to the language again, 
והיה קם דוד ואנשיו כשש מאות איש ויצאו מקהילה ויתהלכו באשר יתהלכו ולשאול הוגד כנמלת דוד מקהילה ויחדל לצאת. ויחדל is from לשון חדל, to stop. So in this context, what we're, the, the question that's being posed through the umim tumim is should we restrain ourselves or should we go forward? Yes, so David was there with his 600 men. They were about to leave this place called Ki'ilah, which was Kuf Ayin Yudlam and Hay, which is a strategic point in terms of the history of the, the business of asking the Urim Vitumim. And then uh, it, they want to know, uh, should, we, uh, should we go out and fight uh, from here? So, now let's read the next couple of Psukim because we find some very interesting things going on. So Yoshafat, as you recall, has, we're going to be doing a bit of this going back to the text uh, tonight. So, so we said that uh, Yoshafat made the, the, the uh, inquiry and he asked Ahab if he would mind uh, asking Devar Hashem and following the, the Ralbag uh, you know, if you're not really used to doing it, maybe you want to try it this time. Vayikbot, we're reading in Pasuk Zayin. We're going to read just two Pesukim. Vayikbot melch Yisrael et hanavi'im karba meyot ish, vayomar aleihem halalech al ramot gilad lamilchama im echdal. If you hear it again, echdal. That's the signal word when you want to ask something of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So, vayomru alevi yitain Adonai biad hamelech. So the word he gets back from all these Nevi'im are that he wants, that, that he ought to go. Vayomer Yehoshaphat, ha'ein po navila Adonai od v'nidrasha me'oto. So this is a very peculiar moment. If you think that the initial conversation was strange. So what does Achav does? He says, sure, you want to know what God says? I'll bring you all of the Nevi'i Habal. I'll bring out the four, these 400 guys, these four, 400 false prophets who have been advising me. And we'll see what they say. And they, using the magic word echdal, or, or, or not, say, sure, go for it. And here is, you know, in Yiddish, there's an expression, eshmekta navela. Yehoshaphat senses that something is wrong. What is bothering Yehoshaphat? 400 people have all said, yay, go for it, go for it. Well, according to the Gemara in Sanhedrin, what's going on is that Yehoshaphat has a Masorah from his family, which is a very strong halachic principle, which we'll talk about in just a half a second, that says if everybody says the same thing, it's probably problematic. Uh, for instance, just as an example for now, we'll see how we do in time if we can go into more depth about this, but suppose that there's a case in front of the Sanhedrin. This would never happen anywhere else in the world. I can't imagine it happening anywhere else in the world. Suppose that somebody is brought up under murder charges, and they have two witnesses, and they bring him to the Sanhedrin, and it turns out, Gershon, you're nodding your head because you know what's coming, because all the Dayanim, Mumchim, right, in the Sanhedrin say, this guy is guilty, he's supposed to be killed. What's the halacha? You don't kill him. Free him. And, 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 here's, and here's, the, here's the idea. Uh, and it's really just fascinating. Think about what we say in Yigdal in the morning. That, everybody here, 
uh, is either said Yigdal in the morning or you've heard it sang. And, you know, hopefully as, as you go on and we go on together, uh, if I have an opportunity to take something that we say every day and cast it in a different light, there are not too many things that make me happier. So if you're thinking about the line of Lokambi Israel Kemoshe Od, Navi Umabit Etimunato. Again, slowly listen more carefully this time. Lokambi Israel, no one ever, there was never anybody like Moshe in Israel, Kemoshe, Od Navi, there's no other Navi like him, Umabit Etimunato. So Rav Sherlau does something really gorgeous with this idea, except that he, what he does with it is he uses uh, what he thinks that means to inter- interpret the Rambam. I'll give you a summary of the Rambam. The Rambam is in Hilchos Yisodei Torah, where the Rambam is speaking about the singularity of Moshe Rabbeinu. And here I'm setting up the point and counterpoint of the Shira for those of you who are pedagogically inclined. We're going to talk about everybody agreeing about something, and one person who we're going to read about shortly saying absolutely the opposite. Mm -hmm. So, um, the Rambam says that this relationship that HaKadosh Baruch Hu had with Moshe Rabbeinu was a panim el panim relationship, Moshe Roet Munato, and that means that the only time, I mean, this is not something that's going to be very popular uh, and, and easily easily heard nowadays, but maybe it's a dissonant voice that at least we get to say here, is that the only time there was an absolute certainty about what God wanted was in his nevuah to Moshe Rabbeinu. Everything else was in some ways parsed out, interpreted, given down, think about Pirkei Avos. This is direct, this is singular. That means that everything else is not singular. So how does this apply to us? Think about what we've learned together. We've actually had the schus here in your slime to learn this together. About people who in Sefer Melachim Aleph were single-minded. Anybody? Eliyahu. Huh? Eliyahu. Eliyahu, okay. Where did we start out in Melachim Aleph? In Melachim Aleph? We started out with Rechava, right? Following King Shlomo. A very single-minded guy. He gets all of his father's uh, advises together, he throws them all out, and the results of Rechavam's inability to listen to a dissonant voice are awful. Next in line, in my book, Yeravam Ben Nevat. Yeravam Ben Nevat, according to the Gemara, it was so single-minded that when Akkadish Baruch tries to make a broker deal with him, and he says, you know, I'll, I'll walk with you in Gan Eden if you just follow it and do what I ask you to do. He says, who else is coming? <laughs> and is it, you know, so talk about single-mindedness. And then just to go to the other side of the scale, uh, it's not just the men who are uh, stubbornly single-minded. Izevel is, is a character who has her mind made up. And if we're talking about her husband, Achav, who is acting in a very single-minded fashion in this week's chapter, his wife was out for what she wanted, when she wanted it, how she wanted it, and if anybody like Navot HaYisrael or anybody else happened to be in the bay, way, she thought it was quite natural in her, just, you know, I get what I want when I want, and that's it. So this brings us back to the meeting between Achav and Yehoshaphat. And we're moving along at a good clip here, Baruch Hashem. Everybody's going to get to go where they need to go. If I can manage to keep my glasses and my head together. <laughs> All right. 
So here we go. It's a same pitch. Yeah, yeah. So Yehoshaphat, like I said, smelled a rat, as we would say nowadays. And he says, is there no one else around? So here's the reply. Pasuk Chet 8. Vayomer merlech Yisrael el Yehoshaphat. King Ahab says, you know what? Od ish echad lidrosh et Adonai meotov. Vani senetip. Ki lo yitnabe alay tov, ki imra, michayahu ben yimela. Vayomer Yehoshaphat al yomar hamelech kein. So Ahab says, you know, I have to, if you're going to press me to the wall, I'll tell you there's another Navi. He happens to be a Navi Hashem, but I am really not on very good terms with him. I have bad luck. If you were a pitcher, you know, the, the manager would take me out and get a pinch hitter because nothing ever good happens when he and I encounter each other. And Yoshafat says to him, oh, come on now. Vayikra Melech Yisrael el Sarisechad. I mean, the, if, you, if you're into metaphors, Imagine that what he's uh, Saris, you know, uh, is is somebody who's just one of his servants, but it's basically his court eunuch, right? Mm -hmm. uh, who else to send the message to a, a you know in a bakavadik away? Vayomer mahara michaya ben yimla, go get yimla michaya ben yimla quickly. Umelech Yisrael v'yoshafat melech Yehuda yoshvim ishal kiso miluvashim begadim begolin petach shav shomron. So this is quite a scene, right? The kings and all the entourage, they're sitting there, you know, like a Sanhedrin, you know, they're sitting around. And I'll skip the part about all the, uh, all the, the via Sheker, because they're all doing their thing. And they are, of course, saying, Alei Ramot Gilad Vahatzlach, because God is going to give this to the king. And then, you know, this is like a, this is like a play. It's, a, it, right? It's, exit. Exit next next scene in Pasuk Yud Gimel. Vahamalach Asher Halach Likro Michayahu Diberi Lavlemor Hinei Na Divrei Hanavim Peechad Tovel Hamelach Yehi Na Divarecha Kivar Echad Mehem V'Divarta Tov. So he gets a warning. The, the messenger comes to Michayahu. He says, "Listen, um, there's a unanimous vote about this. Be a good guy. Keep your mouth shut and just behave." Vayomer Michayahu Chay Adonai. Where do, we, where do we remember this from? In a very funny sort of way. Huh? Yeah, good Barbara, there you go. <laughs> here's, here's one of God's messenger. Yeah, in case you ever wondered whether Nevi'im started Chumash, here you have the answer to it, right? Vayavo al-Amelech, so here he comes. Vayomer al-Amelech elav, michayahu, hanelech al-ramot la-gilad la-milchama im nechdal. There it is again, right? Wow. I'm up to something here, guys. You're not think about what, what I'm up to here. There's the word nechtal. Think about where it was before, because in a minute we're going to get to the dramatic part of the shir. If this isn't dramatic enough, so he says to him, "Well, should we go to war or should we resist or desist? That would be the right word." So surprisingly, Michayahu says, "Sure, whatever you want, boss." So here's Ahab Harosha, right, the killer of Navot and everything else. Now he's, you know, he's standing there with Yehoshaphat. What's he going to do? So he plays along with the game, and Ahab says, now come on now, I know you better than that. You're not such an easy touch. I know you're a cheeky fellow. 
<laughs> Speak what you have on your mind. So now Michayahu really gives him the, his vision. And in this vision, all the armies of Israel are dispersed like so many sheep on the, on the, on the, on the, on the, in the fields. So we'll stop here for now. Aww. <laughs> it is, is, well, I'll, we'll get, don't worry, I'm not going to leave you with no, you, you I just want to make another point. <laughs> So uh, he t- so he tells him, uh, you know, uh, this is not going to end well for you and for the Jewish people. And so uh, Achav turns to Yehoshaphat and he says, I told you so. Yeah. Why are we asking this man? The man is bad news. We shouldn't listen to him. And then comes the following proposal, which is just adds another level of, of absolutely, I mean, it, it, it's hard to make up this stuff. So they now decided that they're going to, get to go ahead anyways. Why Yehoshaphat gives in is another story. But uh, Ahab says to him, listen, uh, I'm, you wear your ordinary clothes. I'm not going to wear my usual armor. I don't want to be identified. I'm going to be an easy target. I'm going to go as a plain guy. I'm going to go out to war. Um, and what will happen is, you know, if they don't see me, they'll draw themselves to you. And, you know, they're not going to kill you because they're not going to sh- be sure what you're doing there. You're not the enemy. They don't know you to be the enemy. And that, of course, is exactly what happened at the end of the story. What happens, of course, is that they spot Yehoshaphat, uh, the, and, and the, uh, the king of uh, Aram has taken uh, his best men, some 30-some guys, and he said, you find Ahab and you kill him if we can get him, the battle's over. So they, they see the one guy who looks like he's dressed like a king, the horses suddenly pull up short and say, no, nah, that's not him. This is some wimpy guy from Yehuda. This is not Ahav uh, Melech Israel." And then they circle around until they find Ahav. They set their sights on him, and he, uh, he's killed. And he dies uh, in, a, in, a, in a very bizarre, but also very dramatic, and, and if you could say it, heroic way. Uh, he's mortally wounded. He tells his driver get me off the battlefield. I don't want the soldiers to see that their king is wounded. Uh, it'll break their spirits. And uh, he literally, you know, uh, bleeds to death. Uh, and all of that does, other than give a gory ending to the story, is that it absolutely verifies the, the nevuah of, yes, the single-minded one, Eliyahu Hanavi, who said, uh, you know, the, the dogs will leak, uh, lick the last of your lifeblood out. So that's what happened. Okay. So that's that, that's the content of the parak. And now, I have some music for you. Huh? <laughs> if you want to call it that. If you can't stand it, you can say uncle. Come on. That's not, that's not it. That's the end we have to skip. All right, you ready? Come on.
Unless you're really a, a, a giant music fan, uh, it's Stravinsky, Writer's Spring. So the topic of tonight's year, other than what we've covered so far, is really the business of dissonance. So I found an enchanting article by a, a man whose name is Anthony Tomasini. Who's, uh, anybody know who he is, by any chance? So Anthony Tomasini is the New York Times music critic. Okay? And here's what he's got to say about dissonance. His beginning is just gorgeous. He says that dissonance is in some ways uh, epitomized by something that's called a tritone. In other words, a note that's a bit off. Yeah. He says in the middle... Oh, Sydney, you know what a tritone is. So listen to this. He says that the, tri the tritone... The tritone... You want to sing it? No, no. In the Middle Ages was thought to be evil. So... Uh, you, you get that something that's dissonant, not melodic, is thought to be evil. It's perceived as instability of two or more sounds, often the seventh note, for those of you who are musicians. Okay. Um, it, there are different kinds of dissonance. There are passing tones, suspended ones. But the part that I really wanted to get to, other than there's something really annoying about dissonance, uh, is that dissonance always demands resolution. Because when you hear that dissonant note, you want to know where it goes to. Speaking of dissonant notes. Let me show that real. Am I getting any better at this? The Ben Cole, you all know the Ben Cole. The Ben Cole's question for the evening is: Was Baruch mit dissonance? Was had dissonance to do with Achav Harosha? What does dissonance have to do with the topic of Achav Harosha? And I'll tell you that I slipped it by, and I'm very happy I did, uh, because we began this year talking about the Urim Vitumin. and the question that was bothering me was. Why didn't Yosheva ask the Urim Yes, yes. Okay, that was my question. You asked that? I, no, I was thinking I was going to ask you, you that. You should have asked me. Because yeah. I asked the question. I asked myself the, uh, yeah, to the question. Yeah, because I said he said, ask Hashem. Ask Hashem, is the Urim yeah. yeah, so I asked myself the, the question, and the answer I got from myself is, you're in trouble. <laughs> I don't know. So what do I do when I'm in trouble? Um, I look at my wife, and she says, yeah, you're in trouble. <laughs> Then I, I contacted Benny Lau. I said, what do you think? And he said, well, I know two things. I know, number one, that there are two references to the last time in his understanding that we hear about the Urim Tumim. The one I read to you was about the David's war uh, leaving Ki'ilau, again with the Lashon of Chadal, where he wants to know whether he should go in this direction or not. And he says the last time it's mentioned in Tanakh is in, in Ezra, I think it's Perik Zion, where uh, Ezra and the Shavet Zion come, and there's a mention, uh, the Gemara says that, uh, based on the Pesach there, that uh, one of the questions they had were, are the Kohanim, who are now coming back from all over the place, are they allowed to eat the Kachim? Are they allowed to eat the holy meat from the altar? And in order to get an answer to that, they had to uh, 
and they were told that you'll get the answer according to, uh, to the Gemara what, in Achri Sayomi, which the Mepharshim understand to be the same time as Tchiyas Amesi. In other words, we've got a long time to wait. So the question is, so why not consult the Urim Batumi? That time? There no. Was well, yeah. yeah, so Yom Shabbat, it's around. Right. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's a local call to your Shalayim. <laughs> There's a Kohen Gadol scene in the Beis HaMikdash, and we're going to propose three possible ways to understand it. The first is just within the context. Um, when Yom Shabbat says uh, to uh, Ahab and asks him to, to be Shoel Bidvar Hashem, uh, and Ahab says, no problem, and he brings him out to Nevi'eh Sheker, this immediately creates a confrontation, which is not an unfamiliar confrontation about, by this time, about uh, who are the Nevi'im, and are they really speaking God's truth, so to speak. <coughs> so on a purely textual level, the simple answer is, it's in some ways irre- irrelevant what the Urum Vatumim might or would say, because it's really about Michayahu ben Yimla uh, versus what the, uh, you know, what the Nevi'eh HaSheker, Tzidkiyahu ben Knana, are going to say. Another way of thinking about it is really uh, what the uh, part of what I think I read very quickly, if not too quickly, I'm just going to go back over it again, is that this is the way God wanted it. In other words, if you remember the Pasuk, that we, so to speak, God is speaking to his Pamalya Shomala, he's speaking to all the Malachim, and he's saying, Who can I send down there who will entice Ahav onto the battlefield where he's going to get killed the way Eliyahu said he would? And so it was scripted that no matter what happened, the outcome was not going to change or in Vitumim or not. So uh, after I spoke to Rabeni and he said what he said, he said, I think you ought to consult the oracle. You should call <laughs> Raviol Binun. <laughs> so two weeks ago, Friday morning, I call up Raviol Binun uh, and I pose the question to him. And the most wonderful thing in the world happens. He laughs. <laughs> for about 20 or 30 seconds. He's just rolling. He's having a great time with the question. And then he goes to say as follows. He says, I don't know. He says, I said, come on. You're of yoga. And I'd say it quite that way. I said, you must know something about the topic. He said, well, we're, you know, kind of walking around. We're, we're, we're fumbling in the dark, so to speak. He says, but I'll tell you something. He said, um, he told me, I, he, in Schuss of the Shir, I got to spend 35 minutes with Riviola on the, on, on the, I couldn't get him off the phone. Uh, so he had a couple of things to say. Um, I'll, I'll start off with something that's sort of the least likely, but in some ways the most, most curiously interesting. He said that um, somewhere, I don't remember what the time frame worked, I think it was probably about 15 years ago, 20 years ago, a guy named Garfinkel, uh, uh, I think that was the guy's name, I have it written down, who's an archaeologist, who was digging around near Kiila, um, uh, phoned him up and said, I've just found something really startling. He said, I found three little aronot, three little cubbies, and they look very, very special to me. So says Rav Yol to me, he says, so Pinchas, he now calls me Pinchas, he says, uh, so when the, when the Kohen Godol talk off the Urim Vitumim, what do you think he did with it? I said, well, I don't think it's likely that he put it under his head like the Levim did in Masechet, uh, in Masechet Midot. He said, that's right. He says, and I tell you what, I don't think he hung it up on a, on a hanger either. Mm-hmm. So I think that these Aronot, these small ones, where the, where the Urim Vitumim 
were kept at some point in time. You can do with that what you like. Then he said, um, well, uh, let me think about the second thing that he said before the thing that we came to together, which was sort of interesting. Yeah. So he said that um, he thought, uh, his, his words, that there was a gradual degradation of our ability to read or interpret the Urim Vitumim, which started at the period of, we read it before, Pilegish Bagiva, because a lot of the, the a lot of the, one of the biggest questions is presuming, uh, you know, we have a passage that says that Pinchas was there, he had the Urim Vitumim, he was, they, they asked what they ought to do, and, and Chazal understood that there was a, such a tension um, between, uh, between Pinchas and everyone else that, uh, it, it, you know, the, the, the signals got messed up. They didn't get the right information. And uh, so the Urim Vitumim was misinterpreted. So said Rav Yoel, I think what probably happened is that people came to rely on the Nevi'im and what the Nevi'im became the conduit for the Var Hashem more than the Urim Vitumim. So then I said to him, well, that's really interesting, because if that's true, we have a really interesting parallel. Anybody can imagine what the parallel I was thinking about? We're talking about Pilegish Begivaz when he, the point of so-called, the spiritual point of demarcation where things start to fall apart. That's, in our context, the time of the greatest amount of Sinat Chinam between Jews. When's the next time we hear of Sinam Chinam having something to do with anything doing to the, the Beit HaMikdash? The Sabayat Sheni is destroyed based on Sinat Chinam. So, uh, you know, again, this is fabrication, it's, you know, uh, fumbling around in the dark, uh, but it's a, a, at least an interesting thought to contemplate that, you know, the Urim Matumim and the Urim Matumim, but our ability to, you know, see through the fog of the own mess that we create through our in inability to hear uh, the dissonant voice uh, really causes us a, a distance or an unnecessary or tragic distance mm -hmm. from a Kaddish Baruch Hu. Uh, we've arrived at the end, uh, at least for me, uh, pretty close. So um, I, I just want to do two last things here. I'll, I'll read you uh, my so-called takeaway message here. Um, and I just, I just want to read you that Pasuk uh, from Ezra. Vayomer hartarshata. Hartarshata is Nechemya. Uh, Chazal say he's hartarshata because they gave him a heter to, to drink stam yenam because of his post. Mm -hmm. So, Vayomer Hatashata Lahem, Asher lo Yachlum mi Kodesh HaKodeshim, Adamon Kohen, Laurim Vilatumim. We will not have an answer, or the next time we'll be able to eat the Kodeshim will be when, when uh, you know, the, uh, as we say in Yiddish, the Meshir Tzaitin, the Meir Biyameinu. <laughs> Hannah, Hannah, you know he's waiting for you. He's waiting for you. It, I'm not even going to say it. You know, just take the, the idea that that the king dressed up as somebody else. Okay. Yeah. All right. He's waiting for me. He wants to know whether you're waiting for him. That's what matters. And whether, and whether we can all behave. In time. I have time a little bit. And we have to get, we get along very nicely until he gets here, right? Otherwise, we'll, we'll be in big trouble. All right. So here. It may be a distinct aspect of the human condition that different views, opinions, impressions, or values make us uncomfortable. 
right? Somebody tells us we don't want to hear it, not, maybe not on the level of Akav, but if, it's, you know, if, if I stood up here and said something that was completely out of the box, like some of the goofy ideas I said tonight, perhaps, you say, well, that's, that's, that's really dissonant to me. That's, that's not what I learned. That's not how I understood it. If the neuropsychologists are correct, just as the human brain is engineered to process every sort of perceptual data, it is also wired to react to the familiar data that is mapped out differently from the unknown. It's not too hard to imagine that if you opened up a person's brain and you looked at the synapses and you looked at the bundles of the neurons, the things that are familiar, like a stop sign or like the Pomerantz sign on the door or the sign that says, you know, this way to Merkaza ear, you know, that there'd be a pretty big bundle of ganglia there that would recognize it. It's also very possible, just like listening to Stravinsky, when you're waiting for the melody and you get what you hear is just this terrible noise, which I'm not going to play again, but there's a whole genius, of course, just Stravinsky that I'm, I'm not going to speak about. That's, that's for another time or for somebody else wearing a different suit. Um, so uh, there's a part of our brain that goes, what was that? That's, that can't be right. And that's the voice of dissonance. As such, prejudice, as the kind of revealed by King Ahab's attitude toward the prophet Michayahu, may be an example of how we are hardwired to, to particular external stimuli, namely ones that we're not really familiar with or sound unacceptable or not reasonable or whatever. So what then are we, are we supposed to do? If axiomatically you can, can't really teach an old dog new tricks, <laughs> and you were going to look at me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm never going to live this down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you're learning Tanakh. It's good, right? How can we hope to deal better with dissonance? How can we hope to avoid reliving the mistakes of our personal national uh, mistakes if we ignore them as so much noise? Must we learn to love Stravinsky? Mm. Rav Yuval Sherlau, who began his career as an ethicist, that's somebody who studies ethics, wrote, The condition for making shalom between people and being able to live together has one axiomatic element that there's absolutely no way to come to a pshara, to a compromise about it. Hu ha'imun it's the belief If you're really interested in shalom, if you're really interested in finding a way to get along, says Rav Sherlow, not everyone's going to agree with him. You have to take it as a, as a given that the other person has their own point of view. You may not like it, you may not agree to it, but they got to it, he says, if you're going to deal respectfully with human beings, even crazy human beings, you have to believe that there's some logic to that. And you have to have some tolerance to hear that dissonance. <coughs> Shim Lokane, if you don't have that kind of uh, elemental understanding and the, the right to say what they think and believe, there's no way to find a common path, a place that we really can get along. I think this parak teaches us a very powerful lesson about Ahab, uh, to learn from Ahab in his dying moments. Uh, his dying days. Um, yeah, sure, it's entirely possible and likely that uh, whether it's Rav Tzadok or Rav Chizdaik, Kreskas, you know, that everything is faded. And this was going to be 
uh, Ahab's day to die, as they say, and nothing was going to change that. We also know that if he had listened to the dissonant voice of Michayahu ben Yimla, things would have ended differently. Uh, that takes a lot of courage. A bracha to you and to ourselves is that we should always have the courage to hear the dissonant sound, the dissonant voice, and if not understand it, at least listen patiently and try and understand that if it came out of a human being's mouth, it has some place in the universe. Knowing where it falls, that may be beyond us. Have a wonderful week. Next week we'll start Perik Bet in Malachim Bet. Thank you. Thank you so much.